on March 29th, 2014, a Baylor professor of sociology and a friend of mine suddenly had a blood clot in his brain. And he was instantly rushed to Providence Hospital. And then they did two surgeries on his brain. And his brain swelled and swelled and swelled. And everyone's fear was that for that long time with the clot in there that he lost so much oxygen that he would just become a vegetable for the rest of his life. I mean, a brilliant guy is now just immobilized. And so even when the doctors came to t- try to, to, to awaken him, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even move. When his wife came, he may have, he may have moved a, a little bit. But then she asked the elders of our church to come and to pray over him. And so all, all of us came and we, we held his hand and we were praying bold, bold prayers. <laughs> Lord, restore him. Save him. Bring him back. And nothing seemed to work. But we left Went down the elevators. What do we do when things seem so, so dark? What, what do you do when things feel just so immeasurably broken that you, you have nothing to, you, you cannot fix them? This man was a husband, and he's a father of two children, two girls. And we were just rocked. What is happening? And you might be asking that same question this morning. What is happening? Lord, where are you? Why aren't you doing what you say you promised to do? Work. Well, this morning, we're going to see the church is about to just be in disarray. It seems the church is about to lose two of their most important leaders ever. And yet, in the midst of the darkness... In the midst of the pain, the hidden hand of God is at work. So please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to read all of Acts 12. It's a longer chapter, but it's a powerful story. And so please, uh, we're in Acts 12. And I think we're reading from the ESV. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with a sword, and when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. 
and the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for him, for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyrn and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. And on a appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do uh, see this as your word, and we are grateful. We are grateful for what you are doing uh, in this world, that you have not left it to, to for us to fend for ourselves, but, Lord, you have, you have inserted yourself into the story, uh, and you've given us the story. You've given us uh, your word. And so, Lord, we'll be able to, to glean from you this morning, and not just from Slim. Uh, Lord, may we hear from you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, this early church is dealing with issues that you and I have, are, have probably already dealt with or are dealing with right now, uh, asking questions like, why does God allow bad things to happen? Why does he let James die and let Peter go free? Who's actually in charge of this world? And for us to see the hidden hand of God, I think we need to see it in three points, and that's uh, the power, the plan, or the, sorry, the problem, the plan, and the power. Uh, and I know it's a familiar outline, 
but we will use it probably mainly uh, m many times. So we have the problem, the plan, and the power. Uh, and so the problem of this text actually is being proposed in, in that what we just said there. Why save Peter and not James? If you've lost someone, you might be asking, why, 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 why'd you let this happen? And so in a sense, we're asking the, the problem of evil. How, how can a good and all-powerful God allow evil or suffering to happen? Enter Herod. And we meet Herod, uh, who is from a long line of Herods. He's not the same one from a long time ago. He's from this line of Herods. And that family is just terrible, right? They, they, if you think about this, uh, this one is Herod Agrippa. Uh, and his grandfather, Herod, uh, was the one who put the edict out to kill all the the boys two years old and younger during the time of Jesus. That was his grandfather. And when this Herod Agrippa was only three years old, Grandpa Herod assassinated his own son and Agrippa's father. And so they're just, I mean, it's just not a healthy family dynamic. <laughs> that would be an awkward Thanksgiving. So not a healthy lineage. But then tragedy strikes, verse 2. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James, the, the son of Zebedee, the son of thunder. I mean, so this is huge. James and, and Peter are two of the three on the inner circle with Jesus, right? They were the ones that were with him at the transfiguration. They were the ones that were with him at the raising of the dead girl, Jairus' daughter. James is the first martyr of the 12. I mean, this is a big deal, all that Jesus poured into James and trained him for all of these years, gone. I mean, his mother is shocked. Her son is taken. His brother just lost his friend. And yet, Luke devotes just a single verse to his martyrdom. Isn't that interesting? That it says that he was killed with a sword, which probably means that he was decapitated. But contrast that with Stephen's martyrdom. You remember that? 75 verses for Stephen's martyrdom. And James gets really just a half of a verse. I mean, that's all his life is worth to you? It's just a half of a verse? Now, commentators have different thoughts on why he only gets this short little um, blurb. And one of the thoughts is maybe because he's, he's still processing this trauma and this is someone that's so close to him, that's all he can talk about right now. And so if someone's ever asked you about something like that, that you may not even want to get into it, and that may be real, that may be legit. But another point that could be made is that the emphasis of this text is not necessarily on the loss of James, but on, on God's sovereign rule amidst the loss of James. And so God has not taken his hand off of earth's rudder yet. God still has a plan, but because of this de decapitation of James, Herod sees that it pleases the crowd. And so because he sees that it's pleasing the crowd, he takes Peter into custody in verse 3. And it's just wrong, right? This is just unjust. And the Romans were known for being, for being just. And here we're, we're seeing so much injustice. And if you've ever been excited about a decapitation, there's something wrong with you. If you've ever been excited about someone's pain and hurt, there might be something wrong with you. And if things seem so tragic in your own story, if things seem so sad, I want you to see right here that it's not the end of the story. That's a chapter in the book. It's not the whole book. 
See that truth that's being played out right here. And so what happens here? Things look dark. James is dead. Peter is under arrest. However, Luke provides a ray of hope in verse 5. But the church was earnestly praying to God for him. And so do we believe in prayer? Do you believe in prayer? James is dead. Peter is arrested. But the church is praying. Luke emphasizes the extent of Herod's security in verse 4. It says that he has, he has four squads of soldiers. A squad is, is, a, is a group of four men. And so you have four of four. So you have 16 men to guard little old Peter, this fisherman, who's not really known for being the brightest, right? And so they're, they're trying to make sure that we guard them. In verse 6, it says he's chained to two soldiers. So he's chained to these two soldiers in between them. He's put between them. There's these sentries, these two lines of guards. There's an iron gate, but the church was still praying. Do we believe in prayer? Do we believe in prayer? John 15, 5 says, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Did he say, apart from me, you, you can do some things? Apart from you, you can do nothing. But I think too often we believe, and I think our prayer shows that we believe, that we think that apart from Jesus, we can do some things. My, one of my mentors, uh, Doug Logan, uh, said, prayer is what closes that gap between saying, I can do nothing apart from Jesus and living like that's true. Prayer is acknowledging our dependence on God. It's expressing our need for what only God can give. And so, yes, we, we come to the Lord when things are impossible, and we say, only God can do this. Only God can deliver us from the impossible things. But if we can do nothing apart from him, then only God can do anything, right? <laughs> we live and breathe because he allows it. The church was praying, and this is God's plan. The praying church is his plan for this problem here. He wants to, to see that we are so dependent on him and we see that the church does pray and when we do pray, look out. Verse seven, and behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell and he struck Peter on the side and woke him saying, get up quickly and the chains fell off his hands. And so you know, you know you've been with the Lord if, if someone's coming and they're radiating light. He comes with light and he, and he karate chops the chains off of, off of Peter. And it says that he struck him. I mean, this is a violent wake up. That's not how you wake your kids. <laughs> that same word for struck is the same word that happens when, we, when, when God strikes Herod later. <laughs> so he, he, he wakes Peter up. And I, maybe because of the, the violent way he was woken up, uh, Peter now needs step-by-step -step directions on how to get dressed. Isn't this funny? The, the angel's like, okay, grab your belt. Okay, okay, put it on. <laughs> it's kind of weird, but, but what we realize in this is that Peter is not doing anything apart from God. He is so dependent on the Lord. He's not planning his own escape. He thought he was dreaming. Verse 9 says, and he went out and followed this angel. He did not, he did not know what was being done by the angel. It was real. He thought he was seeing a vision. He thought he was, he was sleepwalking through all of this. Only God could have done this because the hidden hand of God is at work. Some are trying to say that Peter had an inside guy to let him out because he, of course, there's no way he could have been uh, gotten out of these two men when they were sleeping. They would have known. That sounds right. But these two men were killed 
for letting him go. Do you think they would have died for Peter? It doesn't seem likely. But the story gets more comical. So I think this is a heavy text, but God puts a little humor in here to lighten it up. First, Peter doesn't realize how to dress himself. Put your clothes on, Peter. (laughs) Second, he didn't really know he was in a prison break. He's like, oh, this is happening. This is for real, okay. But then he goes to, to this home in verse 12. He goes to Mary's home. And, and which happens to be, it appears to be a house church. It's big enough to have the church there. And so this is how this all starts, is in a house church. And after knocking, let me in, finally the servant Rhoda answers and, and says, oh my gosh, it's Peter. And she leaves him at the gate and then go tells everyone. And Peter's still at the gate going, seriously? <laughs> let me in. <laughs> and it says he's still knocking. And while he's knocking, they're having <laughs> this big debate. I mean, it's a fascinating thing that happens right here. I mean, think about, like, the theological implications of what happens right here. The same people who were praying bold prayers, Lord, deliver Peter, save him, didn't actually believe that the Lord would save him. They doubt and question Rhoda. Verse 15, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him more amazed. Get this. God answers unbelieving prayer. Woo. God answered unbelieving prayer here. They didn't fully believe, and God answered it, and it was better than they thought. It was better than you think. You may have prayed Oh, Lord, help us to deal with, give us strength so that we can deal with this loss. And God says, there is no loss. He's at the door. Go get him. It is wild. So I think for us to see this, one, God's God's work for you is better than we think. But two, he may have already answered your prayer and you didn't even know it. Isn't that weird to be thinking about? That some of your prayers that you've already offered up, God may have already answered them and they're coming about in different ways than you thought would actually happen that God is still at work and we are doubting him no matter what, it might look different, but God is at work. And so what could God be doing that you don't even realize? What could God be doing in your life that you don't even know is happening? Now, most of us, we have our experiences. And our experiences tell us, yeah, I've not really seen God work like that before, so it's really hard to believe. All I've ever experienced is loss, all I've ever seen is, is, is hurt. And in the same passage, yeah, Peter gets delivered, but James is decapitated. Why does he get delivered and James decapitated? Or ask that big question again, why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow any of it? And I think we as a church and leaders in churches need to be honest and say, we don't know. I don't know. I can give you some ideas, and I think many times we come up with some ideas, but that's dangerous, because I don't think we know. But I can tell you what it doesn't mean. Here's, uh, let me tell you what I, what I do know. It's not because God has forgotten you. It's not because God has forgotten you. And it's not because he's angry with you and he wants to punish you. If God poured out everything he had, all of his wrath on Jesus, all that we deserve on Jesus, then not one ounce of blood was wasted. 
When Jesus died on the cross, God pours out all of his wrath on him so that those who put their faith in him get none of it. He gets the full cup, the wrath of God in that full cup that Jesus says, please take this cup from me. He has to drink all of that cup to all for himself. And so what is happening here, don't let anyone, including yourself, make you believe that you're being punished because of what you've done. Can I get an amen? Don't let anyone, including yourself, and I think sometimes we, we have that shame as, as the default mode of our lives, and we judge, and we have so much heaping shame upon ourselves, and we, 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 we think, God is punishing me for my sin. When Jesus clearly has paid for every, every last drop of your sin, yes, there are consequences for sin, and some of us have felt the destructive consequences of sin, so that's true, but it's not punishment. Eternally, it's been paid for. And so it's not because God doesn't love you. In fact, I think we as a church need to, need to learn this. I think we need to learn, as the church universal, need to learn what Jesus tells us in John 16, 33. And it's, it's, we as a church need to learn what it is to suffer. John 16, 33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He says, you will have tribulation. It's, it's a matter of fact expect it. You will have tribulation. Think about that. Yes, James got the sword and Peter didn't. But guess what? Peter gets martyred too. Later, Peter gets crucified upside down. In fact, every one of the disciples, did you know this? Every one of the disciples gets martyred. It's not a beautiful, happy, right off into the sunset ending for all these disciples. Now, John is, is the one who doesn't get the most violent death, but he gets left stranded on the island of Patmos where he writes Revelation, right? Okay, so you have, you have Peter crucified upside down. Andrew goes to the land of man-eaters and was crucified himself. Thomas goes to India where he speared. Philip was martyred in Africa. Paul, though not one of the 12, gets beheaded himself. And you can go on and on and on down the list of martyrs. And so these are our ancestors, if, if they suffered, you, is it surprising we would too? All of them, all of them killed for their faith, and so it doesn't end happily, and that's where the power comes from. This is where the power comes from, that this is not our home. That we, this world is not our home. This is not our end destination. Like, this isn't everything. I think we, we are slaves to the God of comfort, and we want this to be everything. <laughs> but that, that God keeps betraying us and we keep worshiping him. But for the Christian, our hope is in tomorrow, not in today. Our hope is in tomorrow. I mean, who here has ever gone camping before? Okay. How many of you actually liked it? Less hands. We had a lot less hands on that one. <laughs> That's the goal of camping. <laughs> now, I, I like camping sometimes. But the goal of camping is to make you miss your true home. <laughs> when, that root, when that root is sticking in your back, you're like, gosh, I miss my bed. <laughs> when those bugs are, are bugging you, you're like, why are we doing this? This is, not, this is supposed to be pleasant. It's to make you miss your true home. That's what the Jews did every year, right? They, 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 had, they had their tabernacle, their feast of tabernacles, a feast of tents, and they would go camping to remind themselves that this was not their true home. This is not our true home. 
This is what I think we need to see, that this life isn't it. I mean, this comfort isn't it. That whatever it is that we think is it, is not it. As a friend of mine told me, um, as he watched a member of his family die, he said that, that this woman taught him how to die well. Because she kept saying, this isn't my home, I want to go home. And they said, no, 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 they brought her home. You're in your home. No, that's not my home. I want to go home. And it taught him how to die well. And it's just a powerful thing to be thinking about. And this power that we can see that God is at work, that God is at work even in the chaos. And this is why Tertullian, who's this great Christian defender of the faith, would say to some of his enemies, we multiply when you mow us down, that the blood of martyrs is the seed of the church. I, I believe that we will live forever. And I believe that forever will start, it start, actually starts right now. I believe that we're going to live forever because when Christ died and he rose, we actually rise too, right? That's how this works. Death isn't the end of our story. And if that's true, then you can do nothing to stop this faith. And this is the power that helps you go into the furnace, this is the power that helps you go into the lion's den. This is the power that helps you stand up to kings. This is the power that gives you the conviction of what you actually believe. And so that when someone does crush us, the blood that we spill will actually be proof of that we actually believe this stuff. That we actually believe this. Do we really believe? And if someone, if we start getting martyred, that's going to push the message out even further because we're actually having to say this is, I believe this even to the point of death. And that's what happens at the end of our story. It's the tale of two kings, right? Herod thinks he's won. He's gloating in verse 21. He's wearing these royal robes. The historian Josephus says these are like 100% made of silver. And so when the sun shines on them, they're just glistening. And everyone's like, oh, silver clothes. <laughs> and then they start yelling. Oh, his voice. He must have a, a beautiful voice. His voice it's one, of the, it's one of the gods, not of man. And you have Herod, who's probably doing the Hulk Hogan, right? He's, he's probably saying, yes, yes. I mean, Herod loved him some Herod, and he was accepting the praises of God, not of a man. And what happens to him? He is struck down right then. Herod, the usurper of God's glory, gets slurped up by worms. Mm. <laughs> the, the Josephus says that this, this actually happens in the history books, that while he was speaking, all of a sudden, this pain, this intense pain comes on him. And it says that he's eaten by worms, and usually we think that he becomes worm food in the ground. But we find out that he actually had tapeworms eating him from inside. Right? God, God detests pride. It's heinous to him. I mean, pride is saying I'm something when I'm nothing. Pride is saying, praise me, and I will rob God of his glory. And God, God strikes these types of people down. In the beginning of Acts 12, we have James dead, Peter arrested, and Herod basking in his popularity and power. And at the end of the chapter, you have Peter freed, Herod's eaten by worms, and the word of God is growing and multiplying. If you oppose the gospel, you may temporarily win, but in the end, you will lose and you will lose big. God's sovereign rule rules out any view that life is random, that it's just dumb luck, 
that we just take our chances hoping that things will turn out. God's hand may be hidden, but it is an all-powerful and all-controlling hand of God that is at work. Now, do you remember the story of the hospital, that we were at the hospital? We prayed, we left, went down the elevators. By the time we got to the bottom of the elevators, the doctors called and said, you've got to come right back. Minutes after we left the room, the doctor said, he came too. <laughs> and we're like, what? <laughs> so we come back up. This, this person who's just a vegetable, he's now moving around. He was blind at that time. He's moving around. He's trying to talk. So it wasn't like he just woke up from a dream and everything was all better. He actually had to do a lot, a lot of, of, of extra work after this. And so he was blind at first. He couldn't speak. Finally, his sight comes back. He couldn't read. And so the, the church kept praying. <laughs> and he was able to read. <laughs> and the church kept praying. He was able to speak. The church kept praying. <laughs> He's got all functions back. <laughs> he, God was at work, and he comes back 100%. And he's now a data analyst in Chattanooga. <laughs> right? <laughs> the hidden hand of God wouldn't let these two girls lose their dad. Or let this wife lose her husband. The hidden hand of God is, has a bigger plan than one that we can see, that we can think or imagine. His hand is always at work, even if this wasn't the outcome. His hand is at work. Because some of you might have had that story up until that point and said, that's my story. But his hand is always at work. They are still in God's capable hands. And so I want us to end with these three questions. Do you believe your life is firmly in the grips of Jesus? Do you? If it, I mean, sometimes I think we are so paralyzed by fear and anxiety that we forget. And so do we believe we're actually in his hands? And if, if, we, if the answer is yes, then we, we can be still and know that he is God. That get that, that supernatural rest that comes. And to see the hidden hand of God, to see that he died and he conquered death itself. He took the stinger out of death then we can all die well, confident, no matter what happens, we are in his will and we're on our way to our true home. Two, are you in opposition to God? Let's not assume that you're Peter in this story. You might be Herod. Mm. If that is you... <laughs> You, you might be working against God's plans, and so I just want to ask you, I beg you, surrender to him today. Surrender to him. Give up trying to, to control and to live your life and turn all praise and glory back to yourself and give it back to him. Surrender to him today. I beg of you. And lastly, how can God use your prayer life to advance his kingdom? If this is how God works, it's through the prayers of the church and how can God use this church and its prayer life to advance his kingdom? A guy named Oswald Chambers says, prayer does not equip us for greater works. Prayer is the greater work. Hmm. Prayer is the greater work. So God is on the move, and let's get on the train of his salvation, and let's move with him and pray that his kingdom may advance from Waco and outward. Let's pray.